Section 1 of The Normans in Europe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Pamela Nagami, M.D. The Normans in Europe by Arthur Henry Johnson. Chapter 1. The Northmen in Their Home, A.D. 700 to 855. If we would thoroughly appreciate the importance of the Northmen and their influence on Europe, we must realize the wide extent of their conquests and settlements. To treat of the conquest of England by the Normans as an isolated event would be entirely to obscure its real meaning and effect, and this is equally true of the other settlements of the Northmen. Leaving their northern homes in the ninth century, they had, by the end of the twelfth, penetrated into nearly every country of Europe. So close were their political and family relations with all the countries of the West, from Iceland to Constantinople, from Russia to Spain, during the 10th, 11th, and 12th centuries, that a history of the Northmen is little short of a history of Europe during those ages. The great exodus of the Scandinavian peoples which began in the 9th century must accordingly be treated as a whole, and such will be the object of this book. Again, it must be remembered that the three northern countries of Denmark, Norway, and Sweden all shared in the general movement, and that the expeditions were often joined indiscriminately by Dane and Swede and Norsemen. It will be well, therefore, to direct our attention in the first instance to these three countries, and obtain as accurate a knowledge of the condition of the Northmen in their home as is possible from the scanty evidence which exists. Denmark, Sweden, and Norway were, in the 8th century, inhabited by a people called the Northmen, a name universally used to describe the inhabitants of the Scandinavian continents. These Northmen were, there is little doubt, closely akin to the Jutes, Angles, and Saxons, who had left their homes on the shores of the German Ocean some five centuries before for England. Branches, therefore, of the great Teutonic family of the Indo-European or Aryan race, which, coming originally from the East, broke in upon the Roman Empire and overwhelmed the earlier Celtic or Finnish tribes who preceded them. That this people should have turned north rather than south, that they should have occupied the inhospitable regions of the Scandinavian continents in preference to the more accessible lands to the south of them, may at first appear extraordinary. But apart from the probability that they were forced northwards by the pressure ensuing on the general migration of the Gothic races and their conflict with the Roman Empire, the fact is not hard to explain on other grounds. These continents, Norway, Sweden, and Denmark, with all their apparent savageness, offered to a people of hunters better opportunities for supporting life than the trackless forests of Germany. The land abounded in animals which could be more easily captured in the broken country of the north than in the dense forests and wide plains of Germany. The rivers and fjords teemed with fish and wildfowl, Fossil belemnite and other stones used for weapons in an earlier state of society are said to abound on the Norwegian coast, 
and Sweden was singularly rich in iron and copper ore, which lay very near the surface. Everything, in fact, required by people in an early state of civilization was to be found there. Of the condition of the Northmen at the time of their first settlement we can assert nothing. We do not know whether they had already passed out of the hunting stage and become a pastoral people, nor can we mark the date at which this condition was abandoned for the more fixed one which marks the rise of the agricultural system. The analogy of all other tribes of which we have any historical evidence would lead us to suppose that they had at some time passed through these stages. But when we first meet with them, they had certainly become an agricultural people and dwelt in settled homes. The origin of society amongst the Northmen in common with the rest of the Germanic peoples is probably to be sought in the village community, an association founded on the real or fictitious tie of the family. According to this system, the district occupied by each community was the common possession of the family or tribe in whom the absolute ownership resided and was divided into three parts, the village, the arable land, and the common pasture. In the village, each of the tribal members had his homestead. Of the arable lands he had a right to a share, but he had to follow the prescribed rotation in his crops, and when it was to lie fallow, changed his plot for another. On the pasture lands, he might turn out his cattle and cut his firewood, and when they were taken up for hay, each marksman would have his hayfield. Thus the tribesman was the tenant rather than the owner, and individual proprietorship, as we have it, was unknown. Each village community would have its assembly in which every free marksman enjoyed a right to sit, and here the petty laws which regulated the self-governing body would be passed. This state of things, however, soon passed away. The improvement of agriculture led to the desire of a more permanent system of allotment, and with the rise of separate ownership, inequality of estate grew up. Thus, by the 8th century, the Marx system had partially at least disappeared. Here again we are surrounded with difficulties arising from want of evidence. The sagas are our only authority. Of these there exist two compilations, both of comparatively late date. Number one, the Elder Edda, a collection of the sagas, lays, handed down from heathen times and compiled about 1090 by a Christian priest of Iceland, Seymund Sigfusson by name. Two, the Younger Edda, a prose mythology written in the 13th century by or under the direction of Snorri Sturluson, another Icelander of noble family. In this, the old traditions gathered from the Elder Edda and other sagas, now lost, are strung together and given with matchless simplicity and pathos. Though, then, we cannot be sure as to the exact date of the sagas themselves, they most probably belong to the period anterior to the movement of the Scandinavian people and contain the traditions of the earlier condition of their ancestors. The following description of Scandinavian society is that which has impressed itself upon the skulls or rhymers. They speak of society as divided into two classes, one, the unfree, this class arising after the Mark system had died out, 
and the land had been to some extent divided, enjoyed personal freedom but no civil rights. They did not hold land, nor were they entitled to sit in the local assemblies. They formed a body of laborers and were in many cases the personal followers of those above them. 2. The odal proprietors or yeomen formed a numerous body of small landowners and were the only aristocracy. These were the original members of the old village community who had established their right of individual ownership. They held their land in absolute proprietorship and owed no taxes or dues to the government beyond the bare necessity of contributing to the defense of their country. Any land yet undivided remained the common property of the tribe and was leased out to these odal proprietors on varying terms of tenure. The political organization was based upon the Marx system, which here left more enduring traces. Each village formed a separate community with its village assembly, in which the odal proprietor or yeoman enjoyed an inalienable right of sitting. Summoned to these things, as they were called, by a bot or stick, which was passed from house to house, they there in concert managed the affairs of the district. Each village had its village thing and headman and enjoyed considerable independence. A number of village communities formed a small tribal state with its own petty king and assembly, larger than the village thing. The assemblies of the states and villages enjoyed together a supreme legislative, judicial, and administrative authority. The greater things, assuming the legislative and judicial, the lesser, the administrative functions within their respective spheres. So that the village thing would be bound to carry out the laws made or the sentences passed by the assembly or thing of the state, just as an English town council is bound to carry out the provisions of an act of parliament at the present day, while the village thing would have smaller matters under its own control, just as the town council has. Lastly, these states were sometimes, though not necessarily, loosely united in a semi-federal union. The kings of the tribal states were generally taken from a noble family, sometimes representing the kingly line in virtue of a supposed descent from Odin. Their office was in many cases partly hereditary, though probably, as with the Anglo-Saxons, elective within the limits of the privileged family. Their power was balanced by the assemblies of the state and village, without the concurrence of which they could perform no important act. Still, the king was not a mere non-entity. He presided in the assemblies and over the administration of justice. He officiated in the sacrificial feasts, led the host to war, and as in all early societies, the personal influence of a powerful king would extend his authority far beyond its theoretical limits. Feudal aristocracy there was none. The proud northern yeomen would brook no superior, and the physical and historical circumstances of their country prevented the growth of any such caste. The comparative barrenness of the soil, small pasture lands cooped in on all sides by rugged rocks and separated by deep fjords, could not afford sufficient produce to furnish a rent to a great lord over and above the sustenance required by the occupier of the soil while the isolation of these fertile spots fostered the independence of each family. 
the hard primary rocks of the Scandinavian continents were unfit for building purposes, and no baron's castle rose to overawe the neighborhood. Kings and people alike dwelt in wooden houses, which could be easily stormed and burnt. The physical peculiarities of the country were aided by other circumstances. The absence of the law of primogeniture hindered the accumulation of large properties in one hand. At a later date the surplus population was drawn off by successive colonizations, while the leveling influence of war was not wanting to call forth individual merit and to beat down the exclusive privileges of any one class. In the absence of writing, no learned class monopolized the management of state and village affairs, or pursued their studies in a literary language unknown to the lower classes, as was the case among the Anglo-Saxons in England, where the churchmen often wrote in Latin. As in all early societies, the prosecution of offenders was left to the individual or to his kith and kin. Pecuniary compensations were resorted to in all cases, the state merely assessing the sum. But in the case of greater offenses, the blood fine might be refused when it was deemed dishonorable to the kith of the injured man if his death or wrong were not revenged. This rough and ready system of justice explains many of the bloody struggles of those times. For the mythology of the Scandinavians, we must again turn to the elder and the younger Eddas, and this is what we there learn. In the beginning of time, when yet there was not, two regions lay on each side of chaos. To the north, Nivelheim, the abode of mist and snow and cloud and cold. To the south, Muspel, where it is so hot and bright that it burns, and none may tread save those who have heritage there. The king of that land is Surtur, who guards the land with a flaming sword. When the hot blasts from Muspel met the cold rime and frost that came out of Nivelheim, the frost melted by the might of Surtur, and became a great giant Emir, the sire of all the frost giants. But besides the giant, the ice drops as they melted formed a cow on whose milk Emir fed, and as she licked the stones covered with rime, a man named Buri arose, who was the father of Odin and his brethren. These are the Asir, or good gods, and between these and the frost giants war arose, till at last Emir was slain, and all his race but one. From this one, the later race of frost giants sprang. With the body of the giant, Odin made the world. The sea and waters are his blood, earth his flesh, the rocks his bones, pebbles his teeth and jaws. His skull was raised aloft, and the heavens were made of it. The clouds are his brains. But the sun and moon and stars are formed of the fires which came out of Muspel. These Odin fixed in the heavens, and ordered their goings. Odin, the father of all, Allfather, next made man, and gave him a soul which will never perish, though the body shall decay. Odin was the greatest of the gods. Next to him comes Frigga, his wife, who knows the fate of all men, though she never reveals it. Then Thor, his firstborn son, the Thunderer, the chiefest of gods for strength, the sworn foe of the old frost giants. 
the tamer and queller of all unholy things. Next, Baldur, of fairest face and hair, the mildest spoken of the gods, the type of purity and innocence. These, with Freyr, who rules over rain and sunshine and the fruitfulness of the earth, and Freya, the goddess of love, and many others, live in Midgard, the center of the earth. Here they built themselves a castle, Asgard, high above the earth, whence they can see all that goes on among mortals. Here the good shall live with Odin after death, while the wicked shall go to Nivelheim, hell, the place of darkness and of cold. But these simple myths were mingled with those of a more savage and sterner character. Odin is not the All-Father alone, but the god of battle, Valfadur, as well, and as such is worshipped by bloody sacrifices. Instead of the peaceful afterlife in Midgard, men looked forward to Valhalla, where those who die in battle shall feast with Odin. There their pastime shall be to fight with each other from dawn till mealtime, when they ride back to Valhalla and sit down to drink. Those who die of sickness or old age shall go to hell. The murderers and those who forswear themselves to Na, a region formed of adder's backs waddled together, whose heads spit venom and form streams in which these shall wade forever. Meanwhile, among the gods there is strife and woe. Of the children of the old frost giants, one Loki had been fostered by Odin and brought up among his children to their ruin. Fair of face is he, but a traitor, ill-tempered, deceitful, and of fickle mood. With the rise of the traitor, the golden age of the Asir, or good gods, is at an end, and the old quarrels between them and the frost giants begin again. Yet so long as Baldur lived, sin and wickedness could not prevail on earth, nor could the giant race triumph over the Asir. To kill Baldur, therefore, was Loki's constant aim, and by treachery he succeeded. The gods, warned by the soothsayers that Baldur was doomed to die, made him free from death, by sickness, or stones, or trees, or beast, or bird, and rejoicing in their triumph, found harmless pleasure in shooting at Baldur and smiting him with stones while he remained unharmed. One tree, the mistletoe, they had not named, and Loki, making arrows of it, gave them into the hands of Hodur, the blind god. Armed with these weapons, he joined with his brethren in sport, and shooting, slew fair Baldur, who went to hell. Loki, indeed, fell before the vengeance of Thor, but the doom of the gods was sealed, and heralded by three winters with no summers in between, the twilight of the gods drew on. Then Surtur, the primeval god, should at last come forth, and hurling fire over the world destroy the gods both good and bad. Then should arise another heaven, where the worthy dead should dwell with Surtur, and Baldur should thither return from hell. Priests there were none, the king of the tribe or village took their place, and on the great festivals of the year led the assembled men of the district in their religious ceremonies, and in the public business of the state with which the festal days were closed. Such, as far as we can judge from the scanty evidence that we have, was the condition of the Northmen in the eighth century. At the end of the eighth century, the homely, simple character of their life was disturbed. 
The sagas clearly speak of a severe convulsion of society, and though we cannot trust these later authorities in their details, they were probably correct as to facts. The ill-defined relations of the several petty states to one another and to the village districts of which they were composed prevented a stable system, and offered to ambitious chiefs tempting opportunities for aggression, whilst the barrenness of the soil was unable to supply the growing wants of a rapidly increasing population. Hence the rise of petty struggles which rapidly became universal and distracted the land with civil discord. The more fortunate chieftains established their authority. The less fortunate, scorning to accept the position of dependence, took to the sea, their natural refuge, and collecting the turbulent spirits round them, sought in a life of piracy the sustenance denied them in their home. It was now that Europe first began to hear the name of the dread Vikings, Vic, a bay or fjord, and to suffer from their piratical inroads. In England the Danes appear and threaten her rising unity. Abroad the Northmen hasten to avenge the conquests of the Saxons by the Emperor of the West, and Charles the Great wept to see the long boats of these, the deadly foes of his empire and his race, as they swept the Mediterranean. Meanwhile, at home, the successful chieftains, relieved in part of their more independent adversaries, were enabled, though by severe struggles, gradually to consolidate their power. Many modifications were introduced into the social and political condition of the people. Slavery increased. Social equality was broken through. Royalty throve at the expense of individual liberty. Piracy was now considered an honorable pursuit. The character of the people was affected. Surrounded by daily warfare, they caught the spirits of the times and became more warlike. These petty struggles with their attendant results occupy the history of the northern kingdoms until towards the latter half of the ninth century they were replaced by more systematic attempts at organization. Within a few years of each other, three men arose in the several kingdoms of Denmark, Norway, and Sweden, Gorm the Old, Harald Hoifager, and Eric, who attempted to overthrow the independent chieftains and establish their own undisputed authority. Of these, the history of Harald Hoifager of Norway may be taken as a type. The son of a petty prince in the south of Norway, he had sought a bride from the court of a neighboring chieftain. The maiden returned the contemptuous answer that she would not throw herself away on a king who had but a few districts for a kingdom, and added the taunt that it was strange no prince in Norway could make the whole country subject to him as Gorm the Old had done in Denmark and Eric at Uppsala. Incited by this spirited reply, Harold swore a solemn oath never to clip or comb his hair until he had subdued the whole of Norway or to die in the attempt. And forthwith, says the saga, he devoted his life to this great aim. His object was not gained without a struggle. The petty chieftains, united by their common danger, fought desperately and long. But Harold, aided by his own personal ability and fortunately served by some of the best swords of the day, defeated them in a succession of severe encounters, and thus fulfilling his vow, gained his kingdom and his bride. 
of the petty chieftains many had fallen in battle, scorning to live on in disgrace. A few became his dependents and ruled their once independent possessions as his vice-regents. Most left their native shores and sought in other lands the power they had lost at home. The movement thus began was furthered by the means resorted to by Harold in organizing his newly won domain. In the preceding times, the Vikings had not confined their piratical incursions to foreign lands. They had plundered their own country as well and preyed on kith and kin. Now Harold adopted vigorous measures to put down this piracy. The turbulent spirits driven from their own shores swelled the forces of the exiled chieftains. His measures affected also the peaceful proprietors who had hitherto stayed at home. The expenses of government necessarily increased with its centralization. He was forced to raise money. This he did not only by appropriating the common lands, hitherto the undivided property of the collective tribe, and by transferring all taxes and fines paid into the common treasury of the tribe, or to the chieftain, to the royal coffers, but also by imposing taxes on those who till then had held their land in full and free ownership. Irritated at this loss of their freedom, and in some cases perhaps unable to wring sufficient produce from the sterile soil, many of these, the backbone of the northern people, joined the other discontented spirits and furnished an element of stability and organization hitherto unknown in the expeditions of the Vikings. Then a movement as yet unheard of began. Denmark and Sweden, subjected under Gorm and Eric, probably experienced a similar convulsion, and a general exodus of the northern people commenced. It is material to note the difference between this later movement and the earlier ones which had preceded it. These were little more than marauding expeditions for the sake of plunder. The pirates sailed the seas, pounced down upon any defenseless point, harried, sacked, and burnt the place, and were off again before any resistance could be organized. They had no idea of forming any definite settlement and ravaged the territories of friend and foe alike. But now all this changes. The idea of definite settlement becomes apparent. The expeditions are joined, as we have seen, by a different class, proprietors robbed of their land and rights, as they no doubt deemed them, men to whom plunder for plundering's sake was distasteful, and who were anxious to find a peaceable home elsewhere. These are the class of men who now take the lead and organize the hitherto aimless ravages of their countrymen. Hence it is that the invasions of the Northmen, always ushered in by plundering excursions, about this time change their character and take the form of permanent settlements. Thus in England the Danish invasions which had been going on since 787 assumed a new form in 855, and the country was finally divided between Alfred and the Danes in 878. In France, the interest is seen to center round fewer leaders who are evidently aiming at settlement, and already the Seine has become the favorite scene of action, while the Orkneys, Shetlands, Faroe Islands, Iceland, Russia, now probably receive their new colonists. End of section one.